Today on the podcast, we are lucky enough to have a recently retired Rescue 4 captain, Pat O'Connell. Uh, Pat and I go back a long time now. We both joined the fire department at the same time. And if he's retired, it can kind of give you the idea how long I've been kicking around too. And we were a couple of a class or a couple people in a class over in Europe doing IMP, well, two, but, you know, one and two. Um, at Campus Vesta and just outside of Antwerp, Belgium. And we're here to talk about that today. How you doing, Pat? I'm doing good, Mark. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast here. Well, just uh, so the viewers, viewers, listeners out there kind of know what we're doing and who we're talking to. Uh, just give a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, you, you did a pretty good job there on the start. Um, Patrick O'Connell is my name. Um, patio to most at Ronan. And like Mark says, uh, I've just recently retired from the fire service. I think about 60 days now. So um, lots going on in my life. Uh, they say when you retire, you get busier. And I, I, I can attest to that. It's like all the to do's on my to do list are uh, growing. Anyway, I retired a couple months ago. Uh, as Mark said, uh, from Rescue 4, I was honoured to be the, the captain on Rescue 4 in the Metro Vancouver Fire Department, uh, Delta Fire to be specific, um, for the last uh, four years. Uh, I am a contractor and partner with Ronan here, and Mark and I do go back a long ways till the uh, mid-90s when we went to the JI, the Justice Institute, for our uh, initial fire training and got hired on together at Delta. Um, yeah, my training... Oh, sorry, Mark. No, I was about to say that's been a long while, but carry on. Go ahead. No, um, rope guy, rope instructor, Sprat level two, uh, three times over, I guess. Um, and like Mark says, just recently returned from Europe and um, carry the IMP2 certification and the wings on my uh, Arcteryx hat. <laughs> on the Arcteryx hat, yeah. Um, so I guess let's start with, like, why did you want to go do IMP2? Like, what was the draw to you to do this? Well, I think, you know, as any technician and practitioner in our um, field, craft field, <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, you always want to make sure that uh, you're uh, up to speed on all the current um skill sets and you know i have had the honor to sit with people like mothner and richard delaney and um tom wood from vrs and you know people like that just to keep my skills up and to learn different things and see different aspects of rope rescue and and uh you know now in different countries and i think that was my biggest draw and you know, we've been involved with GRIMP since I think it was 2013 when I first went to Europe to compete uh, in Namur at the competition there. So I asked the question why before I asked the question what, because I think we can kind of agree that we really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Would that be a fair assessment? I think we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into for both things, for Grimp, the rescue competition when we first went there in 2013, and also the um, how 
intricate IMP1 and IMP2 are in the in the GRIMP system. So I guess let's move to that portion now. So what is it like? I've done a podcast with Eric in the past and had some conversation, but now that you've lived it, maybe you can speak to it in like North American terms, not to slight Eric or anything, but like, you know, a lot of times he's talking, we don't quite follow it, but now that you've lived it. So what is IMP one and two? Well, IMP one and two, let's just, if I could just step back one, one notch here, like the, the question I asked myself first is, you know, what is GRIMP? And in 2013, when we first went to the competition, GRIMP to me was a competition. And, and really, you know, it was, it was nothing more than that. It was, it was an acronym uh, similar to SAR, um, search and rescue, GRIMP standing for, um, oh, geez, I don't even know if I want to go there with the French uh, acronym. But, you know, that, that's what it was to me. And it wasn't until we got on and, you know, a couple of years of experience and dealing with GRIMP and going to the competitions that we realized that really GRIMP is, is a system, a, a teaching system, a, a philosophy that uh, is a lot more structured and, um, and well-defined than just the competition itself. And so let's elaborate on that. So you went to school or we went to school there. What is the structure you speak of? Like what, what is the system? Um, the system is very paramilitary structured for starters. Um, they say three levels. I'm going to call it four just because of IMP one and, and level one and level two. Um, it's a training and operational program. It has, um, rules of engagement, uh, risk assessment, risk management, or an order process like some of you military guys might refer to it as. And it um, it is uh, a, a training system similar to the NFPA structure that we see here in North America. We, we train and, and teach under uh, 1006. And um, we have three different levels. Uh, through awareness, ops, and tech of, uh, and of the NFPA. But the IMP is um, similar, but I think just way more descriptive and way more defined. Okay, so let's get right into it. You show up and you start off in IMP1, which isn't even really a call. If you don't do it, you just don't move on. But what did that entail for you? So uh, we arrived, um, we all brought our red helmets because that's what IMP uh, uh, Grimp members wear. And uh, we were told to take them home and we were given a blue helmet. <laughs> You're in training recruit and this is the way it is. And uh, it, was, it was like going back to fire school in day one. It's a 40, 40 hour program, one week. And it starts off with just the simple things of ropes and knots and uh, equipment and talk about fall factors. And uh, they introduced whistle communications and hand signals. And, um, you know, going back to the ropes and knots aspect of it, in NFPA here in North America, you have to tie a, a series of, I think, the the JPRs uh, have like five or six knots you have to tie. Uh, an end of line loop, for, for instance. 
what is that? Like, I mean, it could be a figure eight, it could be a figure nine, it could be a bowling. In in GRIMP, in level one, in IMP, the first week, I was given a sheet. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. I think it had 21 knots on it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, whoa, this is, uh, this is more than I expected. You know, I, uh, sorry. I was just going to clarify for the listeners out there. It's, it's um, 40 hours, but then the test day is on top of that. So it's 40 hours of instruction plus testing. It's not 40 hours with testing, but carry on, Pat. Yeah. No, and, and you bring up a good point. And then there's a test. And that's not just a, you know, show up, tie a couple of knots, do a little rappel. Um, like it's full on. I think the test was like five pages long. And the, the uh, exam took the entire day. Now, granted, we were repelling off a World War I um, fort bunker, which was probably the coolest thing I've ever done, other than, other than competing in the mirror. But, uh, you know, level one is all that. Like, it's, there's a lot to it. So for the listener out there, level one basically... You have to be able to go through, rig their system, and that includes uh, installation of artificial bolts, make small re-anchors, we would call them in North America, fractions over there, to move on single rope technique to access patients. Uh, you have to be able to rescue from a uh, single rope tight line, so crawl to crawl bump, have to go move through an obstacle course. And like Pat said, you have a five page exam the funniest part of that was some of the English translation. We were told we had a five-question exam. We're all like, yeah, let's go have beers, whatever. It's, we got this. We just do a question. We show up, go five pages, five questions, five pages. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, and so how did you find that compared to the North American system? Can you find a, like, what would IMP1 be considered in North America? Does it fall into awareness or ops? And, the testing and the information that was given, is there a, like a linear you know, side on North America that we could say, oh, this would be equivalent to? Yeah, I think it would be equivalent to both awareness and ops uh, in our North American system. Um, the testing would be com comparative to SPRAT or for those that do uh, IRATA, you know, where it, it's, it's a serious pass or fail day. Like you don't just get through it. Like sometimes we get through stuff in the fire department and, and you brought up a good thing, a point there with regards to single rope techni techniques or SRT. Like I know because this program comes from the French uh, cavers of the world in Florac, um, they do a lot of work on single, on single rope. And I went there just expecting that, okay, in North America, we have a main line and a belay line, or we have twin tension, whatever you want to call it. And there they just work off of one rope, but they don't just, pardon the expression, they don't just shit can one rope. Uh, you know, there's a system and a backup system with the, with the uh, French Presic. Uh, what's the... French Prussic works in North America. That's what they'll recognize that as. Yeah. What do, yeah. What do they call it over there? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, the French name? No, I can't even remember it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, 
Anyway, um, but there's a system to everything they do, even when they go on one rope. Uh, they have to answer themselves a, a, a matrix or a few questions before they go on one rope. So there's thought, methodical thought, and probably years of experience from the caving world and from Grimp when it first started. And I can't remember when, but it was in the late 80s or mid 90s. In Belgium, it was mid to late 90s, yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that thought process, like on that particular point there, do you find that their system has more risk management, like a HERA, high hazard identification risk analysis kind of thought process, like than the North American system? Oh, absolutely. You know, they're... They're, they have a step of rules of engagement. They have eight rules or uh, eight steps in their, in their uh, rules of engagement. They run under a risk assessment that um, is proven. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then one Sorry. other question with that is the orders process. Do you feel that their orders process is different or better or worse than ours over here? Um, it's definitely better um, because they cover different or more aspects of it. And the, and the one thing they do do is put the the patient's patient's um, well situation or well being first and foremost, like their recon and get access to the patient is the first thing that they do once they get on scene. Um, but they have a, they have a defined system like our incident action plan in the fire service, but they've, they've incorporated that into now rope access or rope, uh, rope rescue with situational objectives and then what their intentions are and how they're going to do it, where their command post is going to be. And, uh, you know, and that type of briefing happens prior to any, um, any deployment happening. Okay. So that's IMP one. So that's like movement on rope and you can't go to IMP two. And Pat mentions the blue red helmets. Um, you don't get a, red helmet unless you pass the tests for IMP1 and then you just wander around IMP2 with a blue helmet on is like some extra plug um, but IMP2 so let's get into that a little bit what's the meat and potatoes of IMP2 Pat? So I would say I would say that IMP2 is more like the technician level of our NFPA um, and that consists of pretty much all your rescue scenarios and all the rescue rigging that we do and we're familiar with, you know, with the hull systems and the raises and the lowers and the changeovers. And, um, you know, other than adding a few things that we don't have here, like PRMs uh, and washing lines and PRM to me is, uh, is just an, is an offset, an offset pulley that's suspended from the far side, if you will. Um, okay. But it's, it's more um, just rescue scenarios, 
hands-on, whereas level one really prepared you to deploy and to do all of those functions. Like I don't see rescue, I don't see the level two as being much more different than a well-certified NFPA tech technician level here in North America. Okay. Um, and you get and you get a red helmet. And you get a red hat, yeah. Um, now with the IMP2, and you show up and you start you start working through that process, was there any items they did there that were different enough from what we do here that you thought, hey, you know what, that's I gotta put that in the back of my head. Like that's a takeaway for me. Um yeah, so one of the things that I was really impressed with right away was a, a pictorial system that they have and that they use, you know, that we, we all say here, a picture tells a thousand words. Well, you know, we were dealing with uh, Flemish or French, Flemish and English, and I don't speak a lick of French. Because uh, you're Flemish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's even, that's even better. You know, they, they introduced a, a pictorial system that's well-defined in the GRIMP program that made it so simple to follow instructions that even somebody that can't draw can figure it out. So that was one big takeaway for me. And just to uh, elaborate on that for the listeners, we're just talking about during their orders process. They do a, an orders process, and in that is a pictorial on the back where – you draw out basically what you want. And so anybody could just look at the drawing and go, oh, that's what I'm doing. Is that correct, Pat? Yeah, exactly. Just to, like I said, a picture tells a thousand words. Okay. Um, some of their terminology, I brought back, we brought back some of their terminology, the mouflange, which is an, uh, uh, a mechanical advantage system, the... Um, Antoir, which is the freeboard height between, uh, I guess, your master point of attachment and the bottom of their stretcher. Um, you know, some of those sort of things were good. Um, some of the stretcher rigging, you know, with tandem pulleys and high lines and an extra, uh, an extra tether to keep the angle of the stretcher uh, on a sloping high line. Um, one thing that I really did take away from that experience was their look, the way that they perceive redundancy or why they use redundancy. You know, they have legislation that says they must. Um, they have, if, it, if it's easier for them or if it splits the load and makes it easier or in the sense of a high line, to minimize deflection, they'll use redundancy for two tracks. But a lot of times when we talk redundancy, we're thinking, well, what if this breaks? What if that fails? What if this operator is not efficient enough? What if he, what if he goes for coffee? Or, you know, whereas they don't look at it that way. They have, they put a great deal of um, attention to their training. Training to them is, is paramount. We can come back to what, what it takes to, to, uh, to maintain your IMP status. But they don't really look at human error or 
or if a rope breaks as a reason to put in a piece of extra equipment or an extra rope or an extra carabiner. So their look at redundancy is completely different from ours. They're specialists. They run multiple uh, rescues or, you know, for the listeners out there in Europe, you know how wide or narrow the streets are. Most of the buildings don't have uh, elevators. So if a patient, for medical reasons, can't go vertical to come out of a building, you need to take them horizontally out the window and down to the street. And that's the way they do it. We're, we're, we don't see that here in North America. We have elevators and chair cots and, and stretchers that, that fold and make it easier to get into elevators, but they don't do that. So they run multiple calls there, I think, more than we do. And they're true specialists at their job, whereas we in North America, you know, I was a firefighter for 26 years, and I did auto extrication. I did first aid. I was a driver. I was an officer. I did the paperwork. Um, we did trench rescue. We did confined space rescue. Like if you're an IMP grimp technician, that's that's what you do. You are a specialist. Okay. Um, I want to dive into a little bit about the equipment. Like when we went to the program, we had the options of doing it old school or new school. And, you know, for the challenge, we decided to go old school. So some thoughts around that, like you want to just let the listeners know what old school meant. (laughs) So I think, and you can quote me if I'm wrong, but I think we have an 04 D9 from Petzl hanging on the wall at the shop. North Americans are known as symbols stops. Yeah. Stop stops and simples. Yeah. There you go. I, I can't say that I've ever operated one, <laughs> used it. Um, and we were given the option. I know when we went over there to, to meet with Eric, uh, and he said, you know, do you want to do it new school or old school? And we're like, yeah, let's, let's do it old school, which they call the poor way. I think. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have a lot of money for gifts. Yeah. So we were using um, those little petzl pulleys called the... The Feeks. Uh, sorry? The Feeks. The Feeks. Fixie. Yeah, the little petzl Fixie. Um, we weren't using swivel pulleys. We weren't using clutches or IDs or, or maestros or anything like that. Um, it was... Uh, well, when we did that rappel, we did the 80-meter rappel off the bridge in Hawaii, that 04, that simple, when I got down to the bottom, was so smoking hot, you could have cooked an egg on it. Anyway, it, it brought us back to, re, it brought us back to um, doing more with less. And that to me was a huge takeaway too. Yeah, back to changeovers and things like this that we haven't played with here in a great many years. Yeah, we had to build a pulley blocker <laughs> and for those of you that don't know what that is, it's it's really simple to do, but I've never done it before. And you use a rope grab and a petzl fixie and a carabiner, you're good. Yeah, you're you're creating devices that are not currently exist that didn't back in the day. And, um, and just for the listener, I mean, they're much more sophisticated than that in most cases over there. They're running clutches and maestros and swivel. Oh pulley. yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Stuff at Florac at the CNF, all the new equipment. We asked specifically 
to go old school. <laughs> yeah. Um, the testing. I now just you know what did you think about the final test? Because now for the listener, there was a test to get out of IMP one, and then there's a test to get out of IMP two. And we don't want to spill all the secrets in case there's Europeans that are going to take grimp that are listening to this, but um, the testing versus North American testing and how did you find it challenge wise? I don't think I slept the night before. <laughs> um, actually I did. Cause I had one of, uh, I have one of Tom's helmets on with the new visor that uh, he gave us. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Um, no, it was, it was, it was a challenge for sure. Um, you were given the, the written test, which we've already, which we already talked about. Another written test. <laughs> Another written test. So that was two five page exams. Um, but the testing for the final day was you had to build a scenario and you didn't know which one you were going to build. And it was uh, uh, all old school. So using all this equipment and uh, simple equipment that I personally have not used. And I've been doing this for the better part of 15 years. Um, so I found it very challenging. And, um, uh, yeah. When you say build a system, elaborate on that, like build a scenario, like you're talking everything, everything. So we had to build a complete high line system with the stretcher rigging, um, and stretcher packaging, or we had to, um, uh, what were the other scenarios we had to do? I don't want to get too far into them, but yeah, just that kind right. of elaborates. And so for the listener, you're responsible. It's like you go to a gear cache and you get one chance to pick what you need, but right. you don't get to go back. So you better have your list sorted out. You get that gear, you go to your station and you build a complete main safety, double track. If it's a high, you know, if it needs it. And nobody says boo to you. They just sit there and take notes. And at the end, they tell you whether you passed or failed. Yeah. They don't tell you what your mark was. No. <laughs> they just tell it whether you're getting a crest or whether you're getting a hat or whether you're not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just some generalities. What did you find? I mean, the IMP2, I think the total program is 120 hours, if I remember correctly. Um, we had a couple of days off. So basically living in Europe for almost a month, going to school every day. How did you find that experience compared to some of the fire department experiences here where we've gone to, you know, similar academies in North America to do similar things? Was it the same? Did it become a routine or was it just different being over there in that environment? Well, there was five of us in one uh, Airbnb with one washroom. <laughs> Sorry, Alan. <laughs> Um, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest thing, the difference was, I think, the testing at the end of it. Um, it wasn't a show up and get a certificate course. It was all that in a bag of chips. You had to be validated at the end of it. Just like uh, and I referred to a Sprat because I'm Sprat certified, you know, a Sprat testing day is is a challenge. You don't know when you arrive on that last day, whether you're going to make it through because it's a challenge. You hope you are, and you hope that your week's training and your experiences behind you is going to get you through. 
And I find that it was, it was that challenging to me. Well, I would agree with you. There were certainly aspects of the training. I mean, they did a great job, I think, preparing you, but there's always test anxiety, I think, with anybody, especially when rewriting becomes very difficult when you live 7,000 kilometers away. (laughs) You want to knock it out of the park the first time because coming back means you do it in either Flemish or French to do the test. (laughs) Yeah, and we were fortunate to have uh, Eric prepare that course for us in English and have instructors there that could speak English better than I could speak French or Flemish (laughs) or Flemish. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, big shout out to those guys. If they're listening, I won't name them all, but uh, we really, it was, it was unbelievable that they put that effort in there. It's a ton of work. People that instruct understand, you know, preparing for a course is one thing, preparing for a course in a language that's not your first language is an entirely different thing. I've had to do it myself and I hats off to those gentlemen for doing that and to the, the location a um, couple last questions around it <clears throat> excuse me what did you how'd you find the location like in comparison to north american schools how did you find campus vesta oh um so campus vesta to me is very very similar to to what i would refer to here in british columbia as the justice institute the ji yep. they do fire ground training they do rope rescue training they do confined space training industrial police like there's two different the police and the fire academy here in province of british columbia we also have the bc ambulance academy uh, in the same facility and it was very very similar um a lot more geographical space than we have here uh and probably a little bit better funded by the looks of some of the industrial stuff that they had there but very very similar to the ji Okay. And with the, uh, the training locations we went to outside of the academy, thoughts on some of those? Um, again, we're in Europe. We're in World One and World War II uh, bunkers and forts and, and, um, uh, and going to Hawaii, which I don't think we talked about too much, but Grimp originated in Belgium in a small town called Hawaii, just outside of Liège. And, you know, their training facility there was fantastic. They had locations and bridges and um, that diving ravine that we went across when we built the PRMs. Um, Yeah, they put some thought into it. They've been doing it a long time and they did an excellent job of of, uh, getting us to different locations. Some background to that fellow by the name of Maurice, um, rock climber, <clears throat> lost a friend because of rescue circumstances, joined the fire department, went to France, became one of the, I think the first Belgium to go through the French system and brought correct. to Belgium at AY, um, I think it was like 95 or 97 was the first course they ran. And just yeah. to, when you talk about the testing and stuff with another difference, I think you can find do you know ever the number on the back of your badge, Pat, from Grim? Uh, no, I don't, but it's it's not very big. Yeah, it's like 430-something. So since 97 in Belgium, like we're in the 430s, 430s. Like we're talking what? Like 15 years? Yeah. Uh, a little more, than 15 years, and we're at 430 people as IMP2s. 
And I mean, some of those people go up to IMP3 and whatnot, but- um, Is that is that in Belgium or that's all that's, of- No, it's, that's it's kind all of in front of it. So it's Belgium, that one. Oh. But when you look at that, how many NFPA, and I'm going to use air quotes, technicians do you think have been trained since 2000, or sorry, 1997? Yeah, well, here, here's another thing. though. How about how many of them, and I'm not slagging our NFPA techs out there because you do an excellent job in your communities providing a service to your people. But how many of them have been retrained or tested? Well, why don't we talk about that? What is the requirements to so, maintain an IMP2, Pat? And I, well, okay, you're putting me on the spot here, but I know for a fact you have to continue your training. And I think it's you have to have 10 sessions a year. This was a test question. 10 yeah. sessions a year um, to equivalent of 40 hours. Five of them have to be uh, remote or off-site. So you can't just train on the same bolt hanger in their fire hall every week. And one of them has to be in, in the dark in, at nighttime. And then you have to have a logbook and you have to have a whole bunch of other things, just administrative. Uh, and then you are tested by your CT. And you don't think we talk too much about CTs, whether you're a zone or a provincial CT, but your CT is your technical advisor in your zone, in your fire zone. And you have to be tested by him annually. So you have to go through the same, I don't think there's a written test, but I think you have to go through the same practical exam that we went through a month ago, every year with your head of your zone, your technical advisor. Which is something we don't find a lot of in North America. I, Sprat, yes. Yes. But, but not, not anything else that I know of. So... Overall thoughts on the program, worthwhile going or not? Oh, absolutely. If you're a technician and you want to be better at your skills and broaden your um, technical ability, because let's face it, guys, I mean, what we do is a perishable skill. If you don't keep at it and keep um, input and, you know, increasing your skill set, this stuff just goes away. So I can't speak enough about one, keeping up your training um, and broadening your skills by doing something like this. And going to Europe is just cool. Radio. Um, any other thoughts before we wrap it up? Mm. Nope. I just, uh, you know, we talked about Eric a couple of times. I just really, really want to thank him for everything that he did because I know he put a lot of effort into getting us over there and everybody at Campus Vestas and all the instructors. Um, it was an excellent experience. It was great hanging out with Rado and, and, uh, and Alan from Europe. Those guys are great guys and great technicians and they have an excellent skill set in what they do. And if you didn't see any of the videos or any of the pot or any of the uh, Instagrams of us doing the ET cycle across the moat, um, Check hats, it out off, on our half, hats off to Alan for engineering that, uh, that feat of accomplishment. Uh, there's a lot of people out there going, I, I didn't do the bicycle on my IMPT. 
Now you didn't have Alan with you. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us, Pat. I really appreciate the, uh, the information and just the opinion and just the thoughts on working over there and doing that program. No, it was excellent. Um, I'm just thankful to be involved in it. And uh, hey, we're going through a heat dome here. Stay cool and uh, stay safe. Right on. Thanks, Pat.